God's faithfulness. You know, I have been fascinated with uh, kind of all the geophysical uh, power transformation of the earth through this flood. It's cataclysmic, catastrophic conditions that are that are certainly conveyed, hinted at in some ways. I'm interested in, uh, you know, the seaworthiness of the ark and its dimensions. Uh, three, three floors, uh, the equivalent of uh, 20 standard uh, professional basketball courts in size. Uh, all kinds of stuff like that. But as I, as I prepared this week, I just kept coming back to the faithfulness of God. And so... I'm going to focus on that this morning. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 7. We're going to begin reading at verse 11. And I'll be looking at most of 7 and 8, especially 11 of chapter 7 through verse 14 of chapter 8. But I'd like to read some excerpts from that. In the 6th, hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open. And that Hebrew expression is used of skins bursting, like a wineskin bursting. The great deep burst open, and the floodgates, the slats, sometimes they'll translate it, the windows of the sky were open. But we think of blinds, but imagine slats or like doors opening. And the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And let's pick up with verse 24. And the water prevailed twice before in verse 18 and 19. It talks about the waters prevailing. Some of your translations would would become mighty or became great. And so you have this, this idea of the waters rising and fomenting. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind. And we've run across this word wind. Sometimes it's translated spirit in chapter 1, verse 2, and then in chapter 6, verse 3. And here, now, it's translated wind. But it's the same word that's used for God's Spirit. We sang about that. Brian referred to that. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed after 150 days. And the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. 
And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. And the water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. And then if you will, let's go down to verse 14. And in the seventh month, uh, let me back up to verse 13. Now it came about in the 605th first year, in the first month, on the first month, first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. A Tuesday was my anniversary. And as it turned out, the mailman brought a card. And that card was from Tom. And Tom was the best man in our wedding 37 years ago. Tom has never forgotten to send me a card on our anniversary. In fact, he's never forgotten to send me a card on my birthday. Tom is a much better friend to me at least when it comes to writing and sending cards, then I am a friend to Tom. I had a nice day, went to work, and then got home and we went to dinner, and I gave Shelly flowers and a card. The next day, when I got home, there was a card for me with a candle from Shelley. I think she thinks that the day after actually magnifies the meaning of the card. She didn't remember, so to speak. I think she did remember, but she gave me the card the day after to heighten my appreciation. I mention that because I think it's a cute commercial. AT&T has a, it's called The Answer. And you may have seen it. There's a man working late. He looks like he's all alone in the office. He's working late when he gets a phone call. And he picks up his smartphone, and there he sees a picture of his wife. And he answers it. Hi, honey. Yada, yada, right? And then uh, she says, uh, are we still on for tonight? You remembered to make a reservation, right? Yeah, yeah, I remembered that. The number one thing a man should remember. But of course, he'd forgotten. And this whole thing takes place because he has a smartphone and he can put her call in the background and immediately begin searching the web so he can make the reservations that he had forgotten to make because he had forgotten it was his anniversary. And it saves face and saves his marriage. <laughs> Thank you, AT&T. That's the message. Smartphones, especially AT&T, help you remember important dates in life and save you, deliver you from certain death. 
But in our lives, certainly, we think of birthdays, we think of anniversaries, there are high holidays, there are special events. But there are these other critical times in our lives, special events, special dates that are defined not so much by birth and marriage, but are defined by hardship and difficulty, even tragedy. And it's at those times that I think sometimes we wish God had a smartphone. Because it's in the midst of that that we're thinking, does God remember? God, have you forgotten what I'm going through? Do you even know who I am and what's happening in my life? It's not a surprise to me to hear people say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and it didn't work. As if you saw a commercial and it offered you five easy steps to financial success or smoother, livelier, younger-looking skin. Or get my nine tapes, three books, and for three easy payments of $29.95, if you order today, I'll kick in my life-changing tape on... And we think, yeah, I did it. I, I did the three steps. I did these things, and... It didn't work. I want my money back. Where's my guarantee? Who were those people who said it worked for them? Because in this life-defining event, I'm wondering if God remembers me. Maybe if I were Noah, God would remember me. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 6. We talked about God's decision of fateful, horrible decision because God looked and all He saw was violence. We would think of it as some kind of a failed experience but he judged that this violence needed to be punished. And he chose to destroy the world. We wouldn't even know of that decision if it weren't for another decision. We talked about that two weeks ago. The decision that we find in chapter 6, verse 9. And that decision says that Noah found favor in God's eyes. In other words, favor is a translation of the word grace. He didn't merit it. But there was something different about Noah. We have this profile of violence. And against the backlighting of that, we see Noah and this act of grace. 
And it goes on to describe Noah as a man righteous, is one word, followed immediately by the word, I mean, not even punctuation or a comma, blameless. And we're told that Noah walked with God. Now, at the time, I explained that when we're told a person is righteous, it means they're a covenant keeper. And I described a covenant as a contractual relationship where we agree. It's as simple as, and I think in the law, there are unwritten contracts that can be binding in court. If you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, I mean, that's just simple faithfulness. We want people to be righteous like that. We want them to, if they say they're going to be there on time, we want them to be there on time. And I think that's why that word, immediately following righteous, is the word blameless. Because it talks about integrity. He's just a man of his word. And it says he walked with God. Well, what would that be like? We think, you know, holding God's hand or something. I mean, if you're like me, you're very visual about these things. How would you walk with God? Ha, ha, ha. What a silly idea. No, it talks about, it talks about rapport. It's an image that's drawn from our own experience when we walk with somebody. I mean, could you imagine walking with somebody and never talking with somebody? Can you imagine talking with somebody and never walking with that somebody? I think you would be hospitalized for talking to yourself. I see Noah as a simple man of faith, contrasted with people who've forgotten God, who have no place for God. Here is Noah, a man who is responsive, reliable, and has a rapport with God. He sees God in the creation. He talks to God about his life and what he sees around him. I don't think Noah was the only one sitting in church every Sunday, the only one at small group, the only one to tithe, the only one to do churchy things that religious people do. I don't think that's the pick of Noah, although I think if there were churchy things that people did, he would have been there. That's why I used that example. I mean, when you have him set over against the violence of others, you imagine him sitting in this this room all by himself, the only one who showed up. But what we really see here, more than that, is a guy who included God. To God. He listened to God. He acknowledged God when the world did not. We can even peer into the heart of Noah because although there was no covenant, I think God saw in Noah a man he could make a covenant with because he was not a man of violence. And violence says me over you. Here was a man that you could have a relationship with. And so we see following 
Verse 9 of chapter 6 and verse 22, and then again in chapter 7, verse 5, and then again in chapter 7, verse 9, three times it says Noah did what God asked him to do. And he did it. Trust and obey. That's Noah. That was my mom. When I was six and when I was seven, every Saturday. And I, really, I know I was six and seven because my sister hadn't been born yet. Woe the day. <laughs> but every Saturday, we'd get in the, in the 1956 Chevy with no seatbelts. How did I survive? And we would drive the 10 miles from Modesto North to Ripon, which is where my mom grew up and my grandparents lived. Had about 900 people at the time. And we would spend the day at grandmother and grandfather's house where there was a piano and mom would teach piano lessons to people in Ripon all day, and I would play. But every day that we would leave, I, rem- I have the, such vivid memories, Mom would sing. And I would eventually learn those songs and sing in. But the song that I love the most was Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That became emblematic of my mother's life. I didn't see it when I was six and seven. And she was just my loving mom. But in ten years' time, I saw the emblematic power of that simple trust when my dad left. I'll never forget coming home at 17, lurking and sneaking into the house, with alcohol on my breath, not wanting to be detected, not wanting to wake anybody up. Mom and Dad wouldn't approve of that. So I quietly opened the door, and in the hallway, in the dark, was my mother, in tears. And she said, Your dad tells me he doesn't love me anymore. He's leaving me. And I had nothing to give my mother. My only thought was to protect myself. To keep my distance. I couldn't even draw close to her. Because of the kind of person I was, evident in what I had been up to. Mom, it'll be all right in the morning. We'll talk later. And within two years, dad left, mom became a single mother of two children, one really just rebellious daughter, and one really rebellious son, who walked away from God, walked away from the church, walked away from the things that mom stood for and loved. 
She went back to school to get her teaching credential and taught second graders. That was hard, but teaching piano wouldn't provide for a family of three. That was scary for her. And then the headaches began, and they were excruciating. And when they were diagnosed, the doctor said, you have a growth in your brain. You have brain cancer. For me, a guy who uh, thought church and God and all of that stuff was really corny, it drove home the reality of God and His faithfulness and what it looks like when somebody really believes that. I caught her on her knees praying, not just for herself, but for others. Kids snoop around. I did too. I, I found her little booklet with a prayer list of pages of little things, and little things and big things, all things. Nothing was beyond consistent and regular talking with God. It wasn't a happy ending. But yet through it all, I saw, I saw the glory of my mother in the character and the beauty of her relationship with God that continued to emit light and life and joy and love. She died at 45. But I wouldn't be here if it weren't for her faith in the faithfulness of God. You know, some think if we walk with God, we should be exempt from suffering. But we live in a sin-toxic, broken world. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 21, when it talks about the... It's often translated curse. The, the, the notion of that word curse there is treat disdainfully. God has never, he says, he promises he's not going to treat us disdainfully again. But it also becomes clear in that verse that the flood was not to transform us. It didn't fix the world. And God and His gospel are for this broken, sin-toxic world. Not some fairy tale world. In fact, God says in effect to you and to me, I make the difference in the flood, in the storm, in the wilderness, in your difficulty, in your dire moments, in those events. I will be with you. I will be there. I will remember you. And God remembered Noah. What a catastrophe. He gets in the ark with his children and his wife and all of the animals. There are scientists who say 
16,000 would have done it. It's interesting how from two dogs you can get all of the species and breeds you have today. I would never have thought of that on my own. And I'll tell you, I got one of the weirdest dogs. It just... Two would be... Anyway. Pomeranians. I think you have to be a movie star to own one. The cataclysmic, catastrophic, global impact of the flood and the geophysical dynamics that drive it gives dramatic expression to God's sheer power. What is interesting to me is that the flood becomes emblematic, it becomes iconic in layer after layer of the Bible. Tradition after tradition, generation after generation, it becomes, if you will, symbolically powerful. It fuels imagery throughout, throughout the Bible that represents the deep, seemingly overwhelming trust that you and I face. That are not punishment from God, but, a, but show a contrast. In other words, God delivered in the midst. God was there in the midst. And the imagery of the flood helped to set how great is the trauma and the trouble and how great, even greater, is God. Troubles represented by death. Cords of death entangled me. Torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Psalm 18.4. Loneliness. Terrors surround me like a flood, taken my companions and loved ones from me. Psalm 88, 16 through 18. Public derision. Those who sit at the gate mock me, deliver me from those who hate me from deep waters. Psalm 69, 12 through 14. And war. Men attacked us, the torrent swept over us. Raging waters swept us away. Psalm 124, 2 through 5. In other other words, the flood provides for us imagery that helps us to express what we're going through. I think it's common to our thinking that if you're going through something Not everybody's going to think it's all that dramatic. (laughs) But when you're going through it, it's grave. It's dark. The stars have fallen. The sun doesn't come up. And we almost use apocalyptic apocalyptic imagery to describe how hard this is for us. It doesn't have to be a physical flood. But we can use flood imagery. That's what the Bible used. But interestingly, in every kind of trouble, God can be counted on to save those who put their trust in Him. And David exalts in Psalm 18, verse 16, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. And so when we read, God remembered Noah in chapter 8, verse 1, 
We think, well, if he remembered, he must have forgotten. It's hard sometimes to translate concepts in other languages. The notion of remembered is powerful because in its uses and in the scope of its use, we see two things at work. We see God's loyal love, His faithful love, coming to the surface, as it were, or emerging on the occasion that He is going to intervene in a timely way. It's there all along. It's not that He forgot altogether. But that's about the best way that we can render this notion of God's faithfulness connected with timely intervention. When God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, He remembered Abraham. When Rachel longed for a child, God remembered Rachel. When His people were oppressed in Egypt, He remembered His covenant with Abraham. When Mary bore Jesus, and she went a few months along, I believe it was in the sixth month, to her aunt. Her aunt's sixth month. She sang a song. God has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy. How many days? Well, if you paid attention, and scholars are, they marvel at the, so to speak, chronology keeping here in chapter 7 and 8. I didn't even read all the landmarks or touchstones, so to speak, of dating, but I did these calculations several different ways, and we're looking at a year and ten days. A year and ten days from the time he entered to the time he exited, he and his family. That's a long time. If you calculate a month, see, we don't know whether they went by a solar, lunar calendar. But if you just imagine 30-day months, we're talking 370 days on a 360-day calendar. 370, we could say slash one. (laughs) 370 to 371 days. What was it like? It says that the 150th day, God remembered. God remembered. And God caused the Spirit to blow, the wind to blow. He shut up the heavens and the vaults of the earth. And on that same occasion, the ark rested. Noah, by the way, means rest. I don't know if there was a play on words there, but it's the derivative word of Noah. The ark rested. The fulfillment, maybe, of his name. That would be a landmark, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a great occasion? The 150-day mark. He still had 220 days before they lifted the cover and actually exited the ark. What was it like for 370-371 days? I shudder to think. In fact, I refuse. I refuse to imagine the seasickness 
the unknown with its bone-chilling fear, the weariness of incessant rocking and rolling, the cacophonous calls of the animals, the suffocating stench, although we have a way of getting used to it, unending enclosure without day or night, not to mention human grumbling, and the melodrama, if not the madness of human fatigue and disenchantment, and the demands of peacemaking and hope-giving. I don't know about any of that. I wish I had Noah's journals. Wouldn't those be interesting? But we know Noah walked with God, and if you walk with God, you talk with God. You can't. Sometimes we think that we can talk to God and not walk with God. In fact, we do it. But in Noah's case, we know he walked with God, and I believe he talked with God. And I imagine him at times in the depths of that ark. You see, God didn't remember because on one day, day 150, the day before, Noah had prayed. That's sometimes how we think it ought to work. Noah remembered, God remembered Noah all the way through. But it was decisive, and it was the time to intervene when he remembered and he acted. But I think Noah prayed a lot. I think he talked with God a lot. And I, uh, I don't know what his prayers contained, but I can imagine knowing him, because of thinking of myself and being a little bit con- aware of what it must have been like, I can see him, I think he was a rugged man, but I can imagine sitting alone, maybe on some straw of some kind, away from it all, so to speak, with the noise in the background, talking with God, and maybe his eyes tearing up, welling up to the point that they start to roll down his cheek and find refuge in his beard. Because it's sometimes hard. But I'd like to think that he prayed like David did, who in Psalm 56, verses 8 through 9 said, You have taken account of my wanderings. Remember Cain said he was, went to the land of Nod. In fact, his wandering is a variation on the word Nod, and that's the word that's used of David. In other words, David is saying, I feel adrift, disconnected, uncertain, unsettled, but you take account of my wanderings. And he goes on to say, you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not recorded in your book? David goes on to say, this I know that God is for me. This I know that God is for me. 370 days. Even if you take a cruise, you're not going to be on the water that long. And I'll tell you, uh, a cruise isn't what it used to be. I mean, we don't expect anything to go wrong on a cruise. Or we used to. Last year, things really changed. I mean, for example... In November of just last year, the Carnival cruise ship Splendor was dead in the water for a number of days. And Carnival Cruise Lines 
issued a full refund plus a voucher for a future cruise. And they profess that the people were not fed spam. <laughs> My point is, we think that you're not supposed to encounter any difficulties on a cruise. And we feel the same way about life. Life should not present difficulties and hardships. And part of growing up and maturing is being able to incorporate that into your worldview. Life is not a cruise, and obviously a cruise is not always a cruise. But whatever life brings, and I just want to, where will you be April 8th, 2012? That's a year and five days, because we have a 365-day year. That's 370 days from today. What are you going to encounter? What are you going to face? I'd like to think that you and I, like David, would say, you keep account of my wanderings. You know everything I'm going through. When I'm disconnected and I feel lost, and I don't feel like there's anyone around me. I'm isolated in difficult times. Lord, I know you know exactly what I'm going through. Every tear you collect and you keep in a bottle. There's a record of it. I know that you are for me. Now, I just want to ask you this. Be honest with yourself. Isn't it often the case that instead of expecting the best of God, believing that He has a record, He is keeping account of our wanderings, collecting every tear in a bottle, we're thinking, God, you have forgotten about me. You don't know what I'm going through. You've abandoned me. You've left me. This morning, I hope that you will take the approach that David does. And I think the approach that Noah did. That God remembers. He keeps account. He knows what you're going through. And when the time is right, because he knows what is good, he will intervene in a way that is best. Almost gives new meaning to Romans 8.28. All things good work together for good. That's not our definition. That's His. He remembers you. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www gccvisalia.org or for more sermons go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast